0: Sports Business Radio launched in 2004. Brian Berger has interviewed the biggest names in sports and business. Let's step into the Sports Business Radio Vault and look back on some of our favorite conversations. This week, we featured two interviews with Stephanie McMahon, former WWE co-CEO, and Brendan Hunt, co-creator and actor on Ted Lasso. Now, enter the Sports Business Radio Vault. Now, here's Brian's interview with Stephanie McMahon from August 2021. My guest is Stephanie McMahon. She is the Chief Brand Officer for WWE. You can follow her on Twitter at Steph McMahon or on Instagram at Stephanie McMahon. Stephanie, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you?
1: I am wonderful. Thank you for having me, Brian. It's really a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, I've looked forward to this conversation for a long time. I want to start at the beginning with you. You've got such an interesting life. I know it's been. WWE has been part of your life since you were born. I've heard you talk about Andre the Giant was your good friend. You had Hulk Hogan and Mr. T coming over for dinner. Take me into the McMahon house growing up. What was it like growing up in a home where showbiz was the family business?
1: Oh, gosh, it's a great question. You know, it's just the only life I've ever known. Um, You know, to me, I really grew up with my parents building our business, so they were You know, working long hours and my brother, uh, my older brother, Shane, who is seven years older than me, pretty much tormented me as most (laughs) older brothers do. And uh, I do think he may have tried every wrestling hold that there ever has been on me, um, but I am all the better for it.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's so funny. Uh, At what point did you say, you know what, I think I'm going to be a part of the family business or was it not even a choice for you?
1: It was definitely a choice. Um, it's something that I've always wanted to do. I've watched since I can remember, uh, you know, when I was growing up, I used to think my dad was, you know, just the, the commentator on the show. Um, and, and then, you know, obviously started to learn more behind the scenes to sit in on his meetings to, you know, when they were at the house, he used to what's called in our business book, the creative, which is really writing the storylines and, and quote unquote, booking the matches. Um, And I fell in love with the business and uh, and always have. And and I had the opportunity to meet all these larger than life characters and get to know the real people behind the characters. And it's just always been this sort of um, storybook come to life. You know, that's that's this world that I grew up in. I couldn't imagine doing anything different.
0: When you grow up with parents like yours, sometimes it's hard to chart your own path. You are now one of the leading executives of WWE. How have you charted your own path and kind of made your own imprint?
1: Well, I I think it's important that my mom was the CEO, and I don't want to gloss over that because for me as a woman growing up, um, you know, a girl growing up and then becoming a woman, I never saw my gender as a barrier. You know, I always thought that CEO was just the way it should be, right? Not that um, it was unusual, uh, especially at that time. Um, So I do think that that's very important. My parents have definitely provided me opportunities that I may not have otherwise had. Um, But being here at WWE is a privilege. It's not a right. Um, And you have to earn respect every single day. So I try to do just that. I try to work as hard as I possibly can. I try to lead by example. Um, I try to make the best decisions that I can and always use my voice and believe in myself. I think it's important to have the confidence to, to stand up in a room and not be afraid.
0: I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago about storylines. I've always thought that WWE, I mean, I don't care if we're talking movies, TV shows, whatever. WWE has the best storylines of any venture I've ever seen in my life. And you've done it over decades. So here's my question. What makes for a good storyline?
1: Oh, it's a great question. Well, you have to have all of the fundamental foundational elements. And like you said, It's really no different than a great movie, play, sitcom, even ballet. It's really protagonist versus antagonist with conflict resolution. It's that simple. Only our conflicts are settled inside a 20 by 20 foot (laughs) ring with some of the greatest live action you could see in sports or entertainment. But I will say the relatability is so important. Um, And we have, you know, so many different types of characters and storylines, but you know, Maya Angelou, I, I I quote her often. She said, people will never remember what you said. They'll never remember what you did, but they will always remember how you made them feel. Hmm. And that's what storytelling does when it's done right. It makes you feel something. It generates an emotional connection. And that's what we try to do every single day.
0: Yeah, you guys do an amazing job at it. Uh, some of the biggest names that have been in WWE, Hulk Hogan, The Rock, John Cena, Andre the Giant, Ric Flair. Batista,
1: don't forget about him. Who? (laughs) Batista, Dave Uh, Batista. Yes,
0: of course. Um, What are the elements that make for a superstar? Because, you know, I'm seeing, again, like Hulk Hogan, The Rock, John Cena, they've transferred into the movies, too, and are some of the biggest names in in Hollywood now. What are the elements that make for a superstar? Uh,
1: First and foremost, charisma. You know, again, you have to have that ability to connect with an audience and and WWE is unique in the fact that we are in front of a live audience, um, you know, almost every single night. So not only is it televised, you know, to available in over 900 million homes all over the world, um, but we're also in front of an audience of five to 10,000 people, you know, at a minimum uh, when we're doing our programming and for our non-televised live events. So you have to have that connectivity with the audience. You have to have them, you know, give them a reason to make you care. And that's sort of this it factor. Um, that's that's hard to describe, right? It's intangible. Why is one actor a movie star over another? Why does the rock resonate, you know, over somebody else? It's that charisma, that X factor. Um, of course, you have to have the physical chops and the verbal chops to be able to make it to to, to the top of the business. But um, charisma is really that one key that that's the star quality
0: without giving away any trade secrets. I've always wanted to ask this question. So, you know, if you're in a movie or if you're in a TV show, you're rehearsing, you're doing various cuts, you know, take two, take three, take four, how many takes and how much rehearsing goes into something? Let's say like SummerSlam coming up this weekend.
1: Well, it depends. It depends on what you're talking about. If there's a stunt involved, um, if there's, uh, you know, for example, um, my match, you know, against Brie Bella at SummerSlam a long time ago required a little bit more rehearsal. Than probably Brie would have needed because, you know, I'm not a full-time performer. Right. Um, You know, so when we bring in celebrities outside celebrities, there might be more rehearsal involved just to make sure everyone is, you know, knows what they're doing and and feels good about it. Um, Backstage there, there can be scenes that are shot, you know, a few different times, though rarely does it take too long. You know, we tend to move quickly. We are live and uh, you know, Vince, taught me, and I do call him Vincent Business, he's dad at home, but (laughs) nothing can go wrong if it's live. So thank God I play a bad guy, because when I've tripped on my way to the ring, or I've stumbled or fumpered or whatever it is, it's like it was supposed to happen, and the audience eats it up. (laughs)
0: what's that like for you playing a villain a bad guy because i've seen you on things like undercover boss and and you're just wonderful on there and you know anytime i've heard you interviewed you're you're such a nice person but then you know your 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 scripted character is a villain what's that like for you
1: uh it is the most fun to be a villain i hate being a good guy I, i just despise it I love being the bad guy. I get to play out all of the stereotypes that people have against me. I get to draw on so many different experiences in my life and, and the people that I know around me. And, you know, I get to play the person that everybody hates and be condescending to the audience and get them all riled up. I mean, it's, it's just so much fun. There there's, Nothing like it. What a life. <laughs> All time, right. Ultimately I have to eat my own words. Like when Ronda Rousey broke my arm at the end of WrestleMania. So there's a payoff for our fans too. Don't get me wrong, but it's uh it's the most fun.
0: Ouch. All right. I want to talk <laughs> to you about some, uh, some business topics here. So the WWE through COVID never missed a week of TV production. That's amazing. What are some lessons learned from wwe that are going to be part of the new normal moving forward everyone i've had on the show in the last year you know ceos owners of teams everyone's learned lessons because we've never been through anything like this before what are some of the lessons learned that might be part of the new normal for wwe
1: absolutely um you know we had the opportunity to move all of our production into our performance center uh, which is on a done, which is essentially our warehouse. So one of the first key learnings was the importance of having your own facility, I'd <laughs> say. Yeah. Uh, we did hope that by the fall last year, we'd be back, you know, in arenas with live events, but it wasn't meant to be. So we doubled down and we invested in this virtual technology, partnering with a famous group. We brought in nearly 1,000 virtual fans every night. We've had nearly a million fans from all around the world during that time period sign up for what we called the Thunderdome experience. We experimented with drone cameras, augmented reality, virtual reality in ways that we never have before. And now we're taking all of those key learnings and applying them back to our live events. We began touring again on July 16th from the Toyota Center in Houston. And uh, we had a lot of fun in front of that capacity crowd. And we've seen our audience, you know, returning to our live events, enjoying, you know, the upgraded live event app experience, touchless app, merch pickups, those kind of things that we didn't have before. And also now the production techniques that have been implemented with. You know, larger, the, the largest screens that we've ever used for entrances with this, um, utilizing the Unreal Engine, which I believe is Epic Games' Unreal Engine, to bring to life this augmented reality, um, creating almost like a video game type experience, you know, in an effort to bring our superstars to life in ways that we never have before.
0: Yeah, you guys do an amazing job, and WWE's always been ahead of the curve through the years, whether it was pay-per-view, OTT, you've got your deal with Peacock now that we'll talk about in a moment. You just talked about the Thunderdome. Where does that vision come from, to stay ahead of the curve?
1: To stay, well, it's actually um, one of Vince's key learnings for all of us is you always want to be slightly ahead of the curve. You never want to be so far ahead that people don't understand what you're doing. And you certainly never want to be behind. You always want to be slightly ahead. But, like you said, WrestleMania One has been credited with pioneering the entire pay per view industry. Um, you know, when digital and social media launched, we saw it as an opportunity to go direct to consumer, um, it was like grassroots marketing. Um, I think you will always stay slightly ahead of the curve if you always have your audience in mind first, and you're always paying attention to what they're doing, where they are, how they're consuming content, and what they're asking of you, because your audience will tell you, and if you always have the goal of super serving your audience the way they want to be served, that's how you can stay slightly ahead.
0: I want to go back to WrestleMania one. I've heard a story that your parents basically like mortgaged everything they had to pay for WrestleMania one. Is that true?
1: That's true. Wow. I'm so glad for many reasons that it paid off.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. But like, you know, you talk about entrepreneurs and you've got to be all in on things and that's being all in, but look at how that paid off. Oh, it's,
1: It's just incredible, but that also goes along the lines of taking calculated risks, right? And betting on yourself. I mean, that's the ultimate entrepreneur playbook. And and my parents, you know, if they if they didn't write it, they followed it, who would be?
0: Wow. And you know, the other thing about WrestleMania that is so amazing and part of pop culture, it's not just about sports. You brought in, you know, Cyndi Lauper and Mr. T and you know, these people from the world of entertainment. Muhammad Ali, I think, was part of WrestleMania One or one of the early WrestleManias. It was more than just sports.
1: Absolutely. And and when you think about that, going all the way back to WrestleMania One. You know, it was my father's vision of how could we put WWE on the map? Because back then there was no such thing as social media. Right. How were you going to get people talking across all different kinds of water coolers? Um, So, like you said, Liberace and the Rockets opened the show. Cindy Lauper was a part of the Rock and Wrestling Connection. Mr. T competed in the main event. Muhammad Ali was the special guest referee. You know, and, and then you look back to this past year's WrestleMania um, and we had Bad Bunny, you know, was, was a huge part of a storyline that started in January and WrestleMania, you know, was in early April. Um, and, and Bad Bunny actually trained um, to be able to compete in the ring and blew everybody away and was uh, designated by ESPN, I think, as um, the greatest celebrity in-ring performer thus far. Uh, Logan Paul brought his YouTube influencers and was a part of another storyline for us. Um, You know, we had various musical acts. So it is a a combination of pop culture entertainment and what we call sports entertainment for WrestleMania every year. And let me just say SummerSlam uh, this Saturday from Allegiant Stadium. You said it airing on or streaming rather on Peacock should be no different.
0: Well, and this is the first time that SummerSlam is going to take place at an NFL venue. It's the home of the Raiders in Las Vegas. You've got John Cena and Roman Reigns headlining. Uh, That's going to be amazing. 65,000 fans or so there, right?
1: Well, we will see where we ultimately net out, but it's looking good towards the capacity and and where we've set it.
0: So with Peacock, let's go back to that because, again, this is another groundbreaking deal. Um, You know, you've been ahead of the curve with things like OTT. How did that deal come together? And, you know, tell our our listeners about the deal between WWE and Peacock.
1: Certainly. Well, WWE Network, um, like you said, was our OTT, our direct-to-consumer service that launched uh, over seven and a half years ago. So at the time, it was really Netflix, Hulu, and, and WWE Network. Wow. Um, A lot of key learnings there, but also a lot of opportunity to make mistakes, and I think that's something that we all do um, in this space and in this day and age, and I think we had a little leeway to make a few more mistakes, uh, given the landscape wasn't nearly as cluttered. Um, And and when I say mistakes, for example, at first we required a a six-month sign-up, you know, a minimum of six months that you would sign up, and that's something our fans weren't interested in, so we changed it, and we made it monthly. Um, You know, the the price point was $9.99 per month. Um, We we started experimenting with free tiers and all of these different things. And what we found is our fans, first and foremost, we had had a linear deal almost in place that had been being negotiated for uh, some time. And we realized at the last minute we wanted to own our own destiny. So we did some more research. We found that our fans were five times more likely to consume online video content um, than the norm. And we realized we had an opportunity, which is when we launched WWE Network. And what we found, you know, six years later, probably because, you know, we started looking for a streaming partner prior to COVID. Again, being slightly ahead of the curve, we recognized how cluttered the space was starting to get how the tech and streaming giants were really doubling down and investing in their products. And we realized, you know, we're, we're really not set up to be competitive as a tech company. You know, we're, we're a storytelling company. We're a content production company. We're a media company. We're not a tech company. And we recognize the opportunity to really partner with a best in class streamer. And uh, that's how we chose Peacock, working with NBCU, our partner of over 30 years, Um, with best-in-class teams, you know, across all different functions. And uh, it's been really great for us thus far.
0: Well, and for our listeners, uh, Wall Street Journal reports a multi-year agreement between WWE and Peacock valued at more than a billion dollars. So that's a pretty good deal for WWE, I would think.
1: Uh, it, It has been a great deal. I'm not confirming or denying your numbers. Um, but I will say, you know, our, it is exactly accomplished all of the things we wanted it to in terms of a, awareness and growing our audience. You know, Peacock has, gosh, now I think north of, of 45 million signups, um, you know, which is significantly more than WWE Network had. We have the opportunity to reach so many different people,
2: again, really
1: have that best in class experience with our teams and, and also bring to light new sponsors and and sales opportunities that we didn't previously have. You know, again, working with NBCU, who on a regular basis sells the Olympics, um, the Super Bowl, you know, you name it. It's all of the biggest events in the world. And now WrestleMania is a part of it.
0: All right. A few more minutes before I know I need to let you go. The daily habit. I have heard that you have a daily habit. Three things that make you happy from the day before you go to bed. How did you come up with this?
1: are you talking about me personally? Yeah. People in general.
0: No, I've heard that's like one of your pet peeves is that, you know, you try and uh, have a daily habit. You try and think of three things that make you happy from the day before you go to bed. I think that's really a good habit to have. I think a lot of us kind of skip over that in our daily lives.
1: Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I don't, I I may have said that at one point in time when I was trying that out, maybe I should try it again. Um, But, you know, Jimmy Valvano, and I I don't want to misquote him, but he said, you need to think, cry, and laugh every day. Hmm. And if you do those three things, then you've had a full day. And I think if there's one thing that COVID has taught us this whole time period is that tomorrow, I mean, I think more than ever, is that tomorrow is not a guarantee. You have to truly be grateful. And I think you have to live, you know, live as big and as bold as you possibly can because we only have this one life so if you think you cry you laugh and i would add love every day i think that's when you've had a full day and maybe it's a good idea to think about those things before you fall asleep at night
0: yeah that's great advice i know you're also mom to three daughters right
1: I am a very proud mom. I now have two teenage daughters. I can't even believe I'm able
0: to say that. Okay. So wait a minute here. I've got a 16 and a half year old, so I've got a teen daughter too. Let's talk teen daughters for a moment here. I mean, the (laughs) pandemic has been really crazy. Uh, You know, on my end, my daughter was playing sports. She was going to school in person. Um, She was seeing friends and teachers and coaches and then boom, that all ends and you're doing everything virtually. And I've seen the impact that it's had on her and it hasn't been great. Things are returning to somewhat of normal, but you know, as someone who has three daughters, how have things been on your end and what advice do you have for parents like me who are trying to navigate through this?
1: Oh my gosh. I mean, I think we're all in the same boat, right? I'm not sure that I have any golden advice. Um, except to just cherish the time that you do have with them. I do think life will go back to normal at some point and it'll be as if, you know, well, who knows what's going to happen? I can't predict the future, but I think you just have to be there for your kids, you know? And I think this time really forces us all to, to parent more than, you know, more than maybe we have in the past and, you know, listen to them and do things with them. I mean, I think that's, you know, that's, that's the silver lining in all of this. Is it hard? Yeah. Do you have time to do it? Maybe not, especially as a working mother, when you're trying to juggle so many different aspects of this and be an at, at home teacher and, and everything else. So it, there's no, there's no golden rule, but just prioritize the best you can and, and make sure you cherish the time you have with your family and your kids. Cause you just never know how fast it's going to go. I mean, did you think 16 and a half years? Would go so fast?
0: No. I mean, it's been a blur. And 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 yeah, it it's I've tried to enjoy every day and not taken any day for granted, but it's still gone by quickly.
1: It just does. And I feel like they grow before your eyes. And I look into my 15-year-old's face, and I still see that little two-year-old baby. And it's just a marvel to me. But of course, now I'm looking up because she's taller than me, which is something she absolutely loves.
0: My daughter just got her driving permit, so we've been driving oh. lately. Wait till that happens. That's that's an interesting uh, That's right. a test in patience as a parent, right?
1: <laughs> the bigger the kids, the bigger the problems. Isn't that the expression?
0: Oh, my gosh. All right. Before I let you go, another thing I heard about you, you can tell me if this is true or not. You train at midnight. Is this true?
1: Yes. I used to train at midnight, um, and I've now switched to more. But yeah, it, it every I used to train almost every night at midnight, and it was very challenging. But it was the only time I had, and it was also when I was more of an on-screen performer, so it was you know a requirement really to get my workouts in and stay in shape. But um, yeah, it wasn't easy, but I loved it. I'm a night person anyway.
0: And you're married to Triple H. Is he like saying, "Hey, come on, we got to do this," or are you kind of dragging him along? Or are you dragging each other? How's that going?
1: I am married to a professional athlete who is one of the biggest badasses on the planet. I just try to keep up, you know, that's basically it. (laughs) What's he
0: like as a co-parent? You were talking about you as a mom. I mean, I'm imagining you guys co-parenting your daughters together. What's that like?
1: He is the most wonderful father. I am so blessed in so many ways, and that's one of them. You know, when they were growing up, he'd play dolls with them. Um, and create characters that were just, you know, awesome. He's quite creative himself. Um, Biff Bartholomew was one of them. He's the coolest cat ever. And he's <laughs> always cooler than anything, <laughs> any of the other dolls. Uh, and just outrageously funny, full of dad jokes. Um, he loves to go to their sports. He loves to be involved. He's, you know, he's just a hands-on dad who truly loves his kids, you know. And, and my husband and I, we're so lucky because both of our parents are still together, and we were really raised with the same value system. And I think you know the the key to any real successful relationship, partnership, you know, business or professional or personal is it, it is shared values. And um, and I'm really lucky that that we have each other.
0: I know your girls aren't at the age yet where they're dating, but I can only imagine how terrified. Someone would be if they're coming to take one of your daughters out and they encounter Triple H at the pickup. I mean, that's gotta has, be terrifying.
1: It, it must be or will be. And he has a <laughs> t shirt to boot that says, Anything you do to my daughter, I do to you. Oh, <laughs> wow.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. That is amazing. Stephanie McMahon, chief brand officer of WWE. Follow her on Twitter at Steph McMahon or on Instagram at Stephanie McMahon. A reminder, SummerSlam is going to stream live on Saturday, August 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern time, 5 p.m. Pacific time on Peacock. Stephanie, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Thank you so much for joining me on Sports Business Radio.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Brian. I look forward to the next
0: time. Thank you. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. When it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength. Speed recovery and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, You'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com/sbr. That's insidetracker.com/sbr. Now, here's Brian's interview with Brendan Hunt from September 2020. My guest is Brendan Hunt. He plays Coach Beard on one of my favorite TV shows, Ted Lasso. He's the co-creator of the show. You can find season one and season two on Apple TV. Plus, follow Brendan on Twitter at Brendan Hunting. Brendan, thanks so much for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing great. I really want to hear the premise for this show and how you guys came up with it because I watch a lot of TV. I watch a lot of movies. There's so many reboots. There's so much that's recycled right now. And this is truly clever and unique and original. Uh, Jason Sudeikis, who plays uh, Ted Lasso, small time college football coach from Kansas wins a division two national championship. Then he's hired to coach a professional soccer team in England, despite having no coaching experience. So I'm giving that out in case our audience hasn't watched Ted Lasso before, but how do you guys come up with this idea? Because it's really original.
2: Uh, well, it was commercials first um, uh, that we made for NBC Sports. That we were At the time, they uh, were trying to promote their, their new coverage of the English Premier League. And, you know, they saw a pathway into it as trying to, like, not fight the fact that Americans typically don't know that much about soccer, but to sort of lean into it. Um, so we did that the one year and it went really, really well. And they had us come back the next year. And um, at that point, we started finding out that like, even though these videos were made for an American audience, they're being watched as much in the UK as they were at home. Hmm. And that's when we started to think like, okay, this might have more legs to become something else. So those videos were originally made in what, 2012, right? 2013
0: and 2014. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, you had a few years to kind of you know, come up with the idea. When did you and Jason, who I understand have known each other for a long time, when did you guys start talking about, hey, maybe we take this
2: from commercials to TV show? Uh, pretty quickly. Um, it was me and Jason and uh, Joe Kelly is a sort of third member of our uh, triad there, um, you know, before Bill Lawrence came along later to make it a proper show. But we, after that second one, we pretty quickly got to work. We, you know, we spent a week at Jason's place mapping out like a six episode season and, you know, some character arcs and stuff. Um, a lot of which got kept eventually, but um, we we were feeling pretty pretty energized by it. But then uh, Jason kept having babies and <laughs> that slows things down. So it, it took a while for, you know, now all, all his kids can, you know, speak and walk. And so I guess that meant he was clear to carry this thing further. So when did you guys actually film this? What was it, 2018, 2019? We filmed it last year, between August and November of last
0: year. And it looks like you're in London, right? Like, that's where you went to film it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, every frame is shot in London. That's
0: great. How did you pick the locations? I mean, I'm really intrigued by everything from the locker room to the pubs to the apartments. It seems like you guys did a a really nice job of scouting some great locations.
2: Yeah, we... uh... First of all, just a lot of really good designers and crew people, you know, top to bottom. You know, Bill Lawrence, uh who's you know, the showrunner of the show. He, at one point, he took like an advance trip to London to figure out what would be the best area, and he he came back just full of beautiful pictures of Richmond, and we were all, yep, that's the spot. Okay, good. And then once we had that, you know, then Jason and I went there, and like we walked around Richmond. We had a couple drinks with some of the producers, and uh, and. At that point, (laughs) our favorite bar, our production designer decided to physically reproduce our favorite bar uh, in Richmond. So it's an exact copy that we have. So we have two two versions of that bar to go to, one at work and one at play. Um, But yeah, Richmond is, I mean, London's fantastic in general, but Richmond's really, really pretty. And uh, it was really, really fun shooting there. I love the depth of the characters on the show. You know,
0: when I when I saw, I've had Apple Plus TV for a while now, and when I saw some of the previews, I was like, okay, this is going to be funny and, you know, comedic, and I like Jason, and, uh, but I've been really surprised by the depth of the characters and the storylines and kind of the emotional bond that I've created with, with you and with Ted Lasso and some of the other characters as I've, what are we on? I think we're on episode uh, eight right now, almost episode nine.
2: Seven comes out tonight. Yeah. Yeah. At, at, at time of uh, this interview. Well, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. Thank you. Uh, yeah. One thing we identified pretty early on was that the commercials, while super fun, um, were too broad, you know, in terms of their comedic tone and in terms of the character and kind of a, you know, almost slapstick nature. The second one was a little bit less broad and is a little more of the tone that we're doing now. But we knew that if we were going to try to make an actual series out of this, these would have to be real people with with real characters, especially because the premise itself is kind of silly. So, you know, once we get, once we get past that, though, then it's got to be, we got to play it as real as possible. And as, as we say in the improv world, to the height of our intelligence. And um, yeah, so I think that's what you're feeling there. And hopefully that'll, that'll carry on. Yeah. I mean, you feel like Ted Lasso and your character,
0: Coach Beard, a little bit fish out of water. I mean, you're on the flight, you're coming over to London. But then when you get there, and I've been in a lot of locker rooms, I've worked for pro sports franchises here in America, some of the the psychology of coaching and how you relate to players, it starts to come out. And and I really like that as each episode goes on. Because I think that's what makes players coachable, right? Like, you've got to have the psychology of, of, relating to your players and having them respect and relate to you. Cause you know, the first thing you think of is the players look at this coach and go, wait a minute, he's coached American football, he's never coached soccer before. How does this guy relate to us? But you quickly see Ted Lasso and Coach Beard start to relate to the players on another level.
2: Yeah, that's something that we're going for. And and that, you know, Jason has a lot of role models in this. He's got uh you know, he's a big fan of John Wooden. Um, that's why we have John Wooden's Pyramid of Success hanging on our wall in our office in the show. Um, you know, he he's met Bill Self a number of times. He's a huge Kansas fan, so loves Bill Self. But he also was a was an athlete, at least as far as uh, high school, um, and maybe community college. I'll have to ask him about that. Um, but he uh, he has coaches that he loved that meant a lot to him, and he's drawing specifically from his experience of that. Now, I was a phenomenally terrible athlete. Um, <laughs> I was I was incredibly bad at Little League. I was so bad at Little League that I thought that Charlie Brown strips about the misery of baseball were essentially documentaries. Like it was just supposed (laughs) to be like that. So that's how it was. I was terrible, but I kept going back for some horrible reason. So I do not have the positive coach uh, examples to draw from, but Jason certainly does, as does Bill. And uh, yeah, I think that's one of the things that helps make the character um, a little more realistic than you think it's going to be. One of my favorite moments of the show so far,
0: I'm a big Allen Iverson fan. So, and I think the practice press conference is maybe one of the most memorable sports press conferences of the last 30 years. And this scene in the show where Ted Lasso is talking to one of the players about practice, and you know, you can hear Allen Iverson in your ear. How did that come about? Because I thought it
2: was brilliant. How did you guys come up with that? I was actually thinking about this. I can't quite remember exactly. I think it was one of those days where, you know, the writer's room kind of bounces things around and then like someone says something and then it just kind of builds and it's, it's organic and suddenly it's already happened either that or there's a hundred percent Jason, one of those two things. There's really no middle ground. Um, But we're coming at it from a place of great affection for Allen Iverson. I mean, I was never a Sixers fan. I'm from Chicago and uh, love the bulls, but um, everyone's got, everyone's got respect for Allen Iverson. And you know, that speech, you know, uh, is, I mean, it gets funny because it is funny, but it's, you know, there's a lot of different things going on in Allen Iverson's like personal life when that happens. that uh, I wasn't even aware of before we started looking at that speech a lot. But anyway, the key into the notion of Ted taking those words, but imbuing them with, you know, opposite meaning, essentially, um, was just sounded really, really fun and sounded like something that Ted would be about. And yeah we haven 't quite figured out like the meta of it like did does Alan Iverson exist in the Ted lasso universe? Uh, has Ted never seen the speech before? He just happens to have done it He's certainly not tiring to quote it I don't know that's too too much of a rabbit hole, but uh yeah, much love to AI well, one of the things that I love about Twitter is
0: that there's a lot of creative people out there, and sure enough, someone took the scene from Ted Lasso <laughs> and they interlaced it with Alan Iverson 's press conference. So you can see in real time, like, here's how Ted Lasso delivers it.
2: Here's how Alan Iverson delivers it. And it was beautiful. Yeah. I We're getting some really cool fan content coming back at us right now. Uh, there's that. There's a guy who made a website called afcrichmond.com, which, you know, I guess we're the morons who should have bought that address earlier. <laughs> and he's making, like – <laughs> athletic doc, the athletic dot com level breakdowns of our uh matches as if they were real and like our personnel changes and it is fantastic and so that and the guy you're talking about i think his name is david stauffer i can't quite remember yeah yeah but yeah the the fan content coming back at us is is kind of overwhelming it's really cool to see i love that i
0: gotta check out is it afcrichmond.com you said yeah okay i yeah. gotta
2: i gotta check that out
0: how many takes for the Allen iverson I'm talking about
2: practice from Jason. Oh, a lot. Um, it was a lot of takes um, because, you know, he's, he's got to run that whole scene basically, you know, he, he can't, he has no dialogue to rely on coming back at him to help cue him. Um, you know, and he had the speech, the full text of the speech, you know, on a sheet of paper back in his office and I'm like back there with him between takes and I'm trying to, I'm like, okay, you said this wrong. And this word should be over here. He's like, yeah, yeah, got it, got it, got it. And in the end, the emphasis wasn't to do it exactly word for word, but we wanted to honor the tone of it as much as possible. So we spent a lot of time getting it right. And then in the editing, that had to be very meticulous as well. You know, like I remember one time at one edit it was like, okay, the first time you say not a game, we need to see your face. On, not a game. We can't be on Jamie here. We got to, that's when the penny's going to drop for people. Um, so it was a real, uh, you know, uh, jigsaw puzzle to put together, but we we are we are tickled by the result, and that people are so tickled by it as well
0: i 'm really interested in process, so it 's my understanding that you and Jason met doing stand up comedy, and when you improv. do improv so when you do improv, you are improving, but i 'm wondering how you go from that to memorizing lines as an actor because to me that would be really. Hard. I mean, in my business, like I'm improv ing right now, but sometimes you're reading a teleprompter, and as an actor, you don't have a teleprompter there. You've got to memorize your lines, and like you said, you've got to figure out how am I going to deliver these in the proper cadence and and things like that. How hard has that been for you
2: to go from improv to scripted lines? Well, um, and I think this is true for Jason too. There's really been no time where we were just doing improv, that just happens to be where we met, and certainly. We were both in school plays, so you're you're learning how to how to get your lines together from that point on. And then once you start doing it, eventually it just becomes a habit. And you know, actors who've been acting long enough, you just learn them you just learn them quick because you have to. You know, there's a there's a curtain going up or there's a camera turning on, and uh, and you've got to be ready. So yeah, it's kind of just the necessity of the gig, so you just do it. And in terms of going from improv to acting, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I was always doing both, like from a very young age. Like when I was a kid, I, I literally wanted to be in both uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company and Second City, uh, which would be a tough gig just for the, you know, the frequent flyer miles. Frequently. Yeah. But yeah, I've always kind of been split between those two fields myself. Uh, I've been to Second City and uh, what a brilliant
0: place. So many amazing yeah. people like yourself have started there. When were you there?
2: Oh, I, I just took classes there and like I wanted to be there as a kid. I never oh, okay. performed there. Okay. Instead, I went to Amsterdam and I did this thing called Boom Chicago. Um, not that I necessarily would have ever have done Second City anyway, but, uh, uh, you know, which is to say not that they would have ever thought me good enough to be on their stage, which is a, a great place. But the years that I would have been there, instead, I was in Amsterdam with Jason and with uh, Joe Kelly, the other, you know, uh, triad member of the show's creators. And um, yeah, ended up doing that instead. And that's where we all got into soccer.
0: Okay. So staying with process, you guys come up with the idea for this. Now you've got to take it and you've got to pitch it to someone. Was Apple Plus TV, were they the ones that you targeted all along? Or, you know, do you have conversations with several different platforms before you you wind up there?
2: Uh, well, that's all um, a little above my pay grade. But I think what happened was, um, yeah, as is common... I think anytime you're ever pitching anything, you don't want to target one spot particularly right. You want to go to as many places as possible and uh, and, um, and and hope for the best. And so we, I believe, we went to all the streaming places from the beginning because we knew we wanted to be a streaming show and not a not a network show. Um, yeah, and Apple just kind of you know won the bid, frankly. Um, and we're pretty fortunate about that. I'm really, I really love watching you know kind of what they're putting together product wise. There's just some you know great shows in this stable, and it's fun to be part of. Well, they've done a nice job promoting you guys, I think.
0: Um, you know, on their other programming, and then you know, there's a few f bombs and things like that dropped in here. So this wouldn't been a, a network TV show. It wouldn't have had the
2: same feel if it was on network TV versus streaming. Yeah, I mean, we're we're a little uh, uh, we're a little bit clean outside the language, but there's no way you can show a, a locker room and sports life and not have cursing. It just would have been ridiculous to try. So. They've always been very uh, uh, allowing of that. And so that's been great.
0: I love how Ted Lasso was bringing the owner of the team uh, biscuits. And then we find out, I guess, I, I hope, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, we find out that Ted Lasso was making the biscuits at home. And I thought that was so charming. How did you come up with that idea? Because that's, that's one of those things I'm talking about where there's, there's that relatability with the character
2: here. Yeah, um, I can't remember how that idea, how that idea came about specifically, but I think we knew early on that. Uh, here's another spoiler uh, for the people: um, the the woman who hires um, Ted Lasso hires him because she wants the team to do badly. She's using him, and it just seemed pretty clear dramatically. Then you know, for her plan to be, uh, you know, for her to regret her plan more and more, he had to be as kind as possible, which he naturally is already. So that became like, oh, you bring an apple to the teacher every day. Oh, he goes biscuits with the boss. Um, so yeah, it just came out of trying to create the dramatic tension of him being kind and her wanting to never actually have feelings for him because she doesn't want him humanized in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. No, I think that's a fun
0: relationship to watch as the episodes have uh, progressed because she has her struggles too in in her life. and And, you know, I think the fact that Ted is so nice, she's like, maybe I can be a nicer person too. That's, that's where I kind of see this, this going. So season two, I've read in several of the trades that there is
2: a season two of Ted Lasso. Has that been officially announced? Uh, Yeah, it sure has in those very trades. Yeah. We're writing it right now. In fact, Um, we've been writing it for most of the summer and um, theoretically, um, you know, uh, international issues being what they are. um, But if everything, goes smoothly enough we'll be out there again uh the beginning of next year filming season two and 10 episodes is that kind of the
0: the goal plan yeah that's great yeah Yeah, isn't it weird like thinking during a pandemic how do you film how do you return to quote-unquote life as normal have you done anything during the pandemic or has have all of your projects been on hold
2: um, I had a play that was supposed to open at the Kirk Douglas Theater um, that a play I was in and that I wrote, and um, we were all very very excited about it. And it was scheduled to open uh, the uh, the Wednesday after the Thursday that was the shutdown, and and that was that was a bummer. But then we started writing this pretty shortly after that. So I've been very fortunate to you know have a job during this whole time. Um, but yeah, I mean the. The live, I don't want to drag down too much, but the live event world is really, really suffering, you know, in the same way the sports world has to a degree, but, you know, at least sports have been able to go on for the most part just without an audience, but, you know, theater and and other, you know, concerts and stuff, it's really, really tough going right now. Yeah,
0: it is very tough going. I hope that it returns to whatever the new normal looks like. I know a lot of people are out of work and, and this is their livelihood. So I hope that returns to normal. When you're writing an episode of Ted Lasso like you are right now, typically, how long does it take to write one episode?
2: Well, it's all a bit of a mishmash because, you know, the idea is, you know, there's 11 writers in the staff um, and uh, we all, you know, work together. We would be around a conference table normally, but now it's just over Zoom. And, you know, at first we talk about, you know, the arc of the of the whole season basically and and everyone's pitching in and everyone has ideas you know what lar- largely uh conducted by bill um and then eventually it starts to get a little more specific and we're you know dividing things into what the episodes are and then eventually someone gets assigned an episode and they go away and they go away usually for a week and um and then they come back with a with a draft and we give notes on that and we uh, go from there so you know the the nuts and bolts takes a week but the uh, you know, the, uh, I mean, may my metaphor is the planting of the seeds, uh, happens much earlier. And you have more time right now because production
0: isn't going on, but typically are you writing the entire season or
2: are you writing episode by episode? Um, the, I mean, both, I guess. Um, but you know, in, in order, Yeah. Um, but yeah, we get, we get, uh, you know, the writers are, are, are hired for 18 weeks, which is pretty standard. Um and you know hopefully be able to get that done uh in that time. Um you know, but you know sometimes these things get extended, you know, who who knows. But um yeah, luckily no one has a lot else to do. So it looks like we're we're gonna make it. Before I let you go, uh your character, Coach Beard, is it I I love
0: you're like the the straight guy. You know, you just kinda you're kinda stoic at times. Uh, you know, you chime in now and again. Is that your natural personality? Because just by talking to you now, it doesn't seem like that's your natural personality. You seem more
2: outgoing than Coach Beard. It, it is not my natural personality. I am a loquacious bladder mouth, as a matter <laughs> of fact. Um, but, uh, but, you know, my, it's not my job. On this. My job here is to, you know, serve the scene. And uh, Beard's job is to, is to serve Ted, you know, by doing such things like learning the rules of soccer and whatever else uh, Ted can't quite find time for. Um, so it's super fun actually to play straight man and to just to, uh, be more economical and surgical with my, uh, you know, moments of impact, so to speak. Um, you know, much as Jordan changed his game late in his career. Oh no, no. I won't make that comparison. (laughs) Um, but yeah, mixing it up. It's kind of fun. So have you been a Bulls fan all your life? Um, the very first basketball game I ever watched was the Michael Jordan 63 point game against the Celtics. And I, I knew the Bulls had existed before then, but I was never was a basketball guy. I, I knew that there was someone named Reggie Theus and someone named Martis Gilmore um, and Orlando Woolridge. But then that game, I mean, I just couldn't believe it. Because also somehow, even though I'd never watched a basketball game, I knew to hate the Celtics. It was just something that I, you know, found natural. Um, but from then on, just hardcore Bulls fan to this day. And I uh, the, the day Derek Rose got injured is still a real, real, real sad day in my life. <laughs>
0: yeah no that was really that totally changed the arc of that franchise for yeah till now really um did you watch last dance the Oh yeah every second of it wasn't it amazing what did you like the most
2: about it um no it's a great question because there's all there wasn't that much of it that was new you know like we kind of seen all of this before either from being a bulls fan or like watching the dream team documentary uh, for example. Um, but just, you know, watching it play out, you know, finding out just how much of a distraction Dennis Rodman actually was, um, you know, and like hearing some of the the warts and all come out. Cause like a lot of this stuff was also in Sam Smith's book, the Jordan rules, which I read while I was in high school. Um, but, you know, getting it out there about all the guys that, you know, Jordan punched <laughs> in practice and that sort of thing. It was just great to see it again and to relive it because that was, that was really an incredible time that I associate, as I'm sure all Bulls fans do, like you associate that period with a specific period of your life and the friends you hung out with then, you know, who you'd gather around uh, the TV to watch with, cause you couldn't, you know, you're not DVRing those games. You're watching them as they happen. You're experiencing right. those emotions without interruption. And uh, yeah, it was just good to relive that again. The last dance was, hey, chef's a kiss. Mwah.
0: So I, I used to work uh, in the NBA and have friends that are still there. So I'll tell you this, maybe you don't know this. Only 5% of all of the footage that they shot was used in that documentary. So 95% of the footage they shot wasn't even used. So imagine, like you could do another couple of last dances. When I heard that, I was like, my God, that's, that's a lot
2: of footage they still have. I will say there was a real, real shortage of Luke Longley in that thing. <laughs> I will happily watch 10 episodes of the Luke Longley story. And I think I speak for America when I say that. So let's make that happen.
0: That's right. Uh, soccer team, do you have a favorite soccer club? Who are they? Uh, yes, Arsenal. Arsenal, London. Okay. Yes. So has that helped you by being a fan for being part of the AFC Richmond club? You, that's where you've brushed up on all of your soccer knowledge? <laughs> Yeah, so we all,
2: you know, lived in Amsterdam for different periods, me and Joe and Jason uh, doing comedy out there with a, with a uh, theater called Boom Chicago. And yeah, again, there was no streaming, there was no DVRing. So I, I couldn't watch the Bulls or the Bears. Um, and so I had a sports-shaped hole in my life, and I slowly gravitated towards soccer, you know, and Holland, um, in particular, is a great team in, you know, European Championships and World Cups. And I moved there in 1999, and in Euro 2000, Holland was the host so it was a particularly big tournament there and i lived with eight dutch guys we just randomly they had like a three-story apartment above mcdonald's around the corner from where i lived and when i finally realized how big soccer was there was when my roommates built bleachers in our living room so that when we had parties to watch these games the sight lines would be good for everybody. <laughs> and there was a sign-up sheet because you couldn't just bring anybody. You had to sign up to bring friends because they had calculated, like, the weight distribution and how much would be too much for it all to collapse. So we had a projector and actual bleachers for the entire month of this tournament, and uh, that, among other things, got me hooked forever. Like, you know, I'd been told all my life that soccer was lame or boring or what have you, and, like, i I've been lied to. i have been lied to. It's one thing if you don't like sports. But if you don't like sports and you don't like soccer, then you confuse me. I, I don't understand because soccer is fantastic. What an amazing time in your life. And it sounds like the bleachers across
0: from Wrigley Field, doesn't it? It kind of sounds like same kind of setup. Yeah. Yeah. Except
2: I think at Wrigley Field, they were getting less drunk than we were getting watching <laughs> hound. <laughs> well,
0: that's great. Well, I appreciate your time. Brendan Hunt. You can follow him on Twitter at Brendan Hunting. You can watch him on Ted Lasso on Apple Plus TV, co-creator of the show, Coach Beard. You guys do a phenomenal job. I tip my cap to you and uh, keep up the great work. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This episode of Sports Business Radio is brought to you by Underdog Fantasy, the fastest growing fantasy app ever released and the official gaming partner of Sports Business Radio. And with early investors like Mark Cuban, Kevin Durant, Adam Schefter, and Jared Goff, I know that Underdog Fantasy is made for people like me who are on the go and want something quick, easy, and fun to play. And today, we've got a special offer for Sports Business Radio listeners. If you sign up to Underdog Fantasy using the promo code SBR, they're going to double your first deposit up to $100. No risk, no long-term commitment, Just sign up using promo code SBR, and your first deposit is matched up to $100 for free. I already play Underdog Fantasy on the Underdog Fantasy app, but if I didn't, I'd use that free $100 and go for a pick'em contest where I can bet the over-under on individual players or team matchups. Or maybe the Best Ball Mania 3 contest worth $10 million in total prizes. All you have to do is draft a team for the season, No waivers, no lineups, no injury reports. Underdog Fantasy takes care of all of that for you. So do what I've been doing. Go to Underdog Fantasy, download the app, sign up with promo code SBR, and get started right away with a free match on your first deposit up to $100. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our team at Sports Business Radio. Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, Ryan Nakajima, and... Our friends at CG Sports who power Sports Business Radio, CG Young, Matt Amerlin, Nicole Wardle, and Calvin Wirtz. I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio.